the Lord Jesus Christ and that there is a flowing fountain, and, and it sounds unusual, a fountain of blood, but we understand that without the shedding of blood, that is the loss of life, there is no forgiveness of sins. Nothing can happen without the shedding of such blood. And we stand underneath that blood. We, we fix ourselves underneath the threshold of the blood that's been applied to the door, doorway of our souls. And the angel of death, who rightly should come and judge with such severity, passes over us. Indeed, our Christ is our Passover. We want to thank you. We want to ask you to allow the teaching ministry service of the Spirit of God to be present today. Lord, we want to come away with a fresher, more clear, crisp uh, picture of our Savior. And we want to respond to Him. We don't want to be dormant. We don't want to be unresponsive. We want to be uh, uh, fully engaged in the conversation that He has. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let's pick up where we left off. We're in the the fifth paragraph or so of John chapter 4. And the title of this paragraph is Expansion. The Lord God is, or the Lord Jesus is going to expand several things. The word worship is the proscunio, that term that I talked about in terms of the uh, Persian illusions. That's the word that's used here somewhere around 15 or so times. Now, I've divided this up into two verse increments. And the first division of our paragraph will be diversion. This is now the lady talking. And I want you to see what she read in verse 19. She read the situation, and I'll read the verse. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The word ought is a very strong word. Now, she's reading this correctly, and I, I like it. I love, and I love how the Lord gives her the credit, you know. He doesn't say, well, you don't know anything you're talking about. He doesn't like belittle the lady. He makes some corrections, as he should. He's, a, he's, he's, uh, he's got the uh, um, uh, prerogative to do so. But, but she just states what she knows. Sometimes that's all that it is, right? We, just, we don't know very much, but, but let's, let's get it out there because I don't think God is going to belittle you for it. And certainly in the assembly, we should not do that to one another. Because we all come, really, as beggars having bread, right? I do. I, I, just, I, I think I'm just a beggar. God, the Lord's given me bread, and I'd like to share it with you. That's all this is about. Anyway, he says, she says, well, I, you know, you, 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 you're born in that rabbi, aren't you? I thought you were kind of a traveling rabbi kind of guy, because you're talking about wells and water and stuff. But you've got to be more than a rabbi, because you basically told me about my whole life story in about 30 seconds. Right? God's listening. Doesn't miss a beat. You must be like a prophet. I mean, you told me everything. Prophets of old used to do that, right? I remember Elijah. I remember all those guys. I bet you're like one of those guys. See, given some measure of reading the situation, it's as far as her belief system would take her, right? As far as she could go. And I love the Lord Jesus about how he handles her. Uh, the first thing that was done, of course, was she read the situation and then she, re- or she had a recollection. She said, well, listen, it says this, you Jews, our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that it's in the place of Jerusalem. 
Now, this is where I have to do some explanation. All right? On my left side here, we have weighing in at 140,000 million pounds, Mount Gerizim. And on the right side here, we have weighing in at 140,000 pounds, Mount Ebal. Are you with me? Are you awake? Everybody needs to be awake, okay? And this, these two mountains are really, really important in biblical history. Because in the middle, you have this place called Shechem, or Shechem, right? And right next to Shechem, literally about a mile away, is this town called Sikar. Now, when you stand in Sikar, you look up to the left, and you see Mount Gedezim. And you look on the right, you see Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal's on the north, Mount Gedezim is on the south. We stand in the middle there, right? Now, in the Old Testament, and I listed the scriptures for you, it's Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8. In Deuteronomy 27, Moses said, when you get into the land, you go on Mount Gedizim and Mount Ebal, you read the curses and the blessings of the law, which is located in, of course, the Torah. And he said, listen, the blessings, the blessings by following the Word of God, you have five, six tribes stand on the, mount, on the, uh, sur- the surface, the mountainside of Gedizim, and you read them out, and you have six tribes stand on the, on the side of cursings, or the Mount Ebal, and you read them out. And you sort of read them out like Antiphony, back and forth, right? And so you're reading the cursings, and you answer. And when you do that, or this is a command that I want you to do. So Joshua, what's he do? He gets into the land, conquers everything. We're talking a few years later now. Gets everything conquered to a certain point. He meets at Mount Gedizim and Mount Ebal, and he's got six tribes over here and six tribes over here. And what happens is they read it. And then what it says this, and this is in Joshua chapter 8, 33 through 5. He says, and then they, on the sides of the cursings, they make a sacrifice. All right, what does that tell you? That tells you this. It tells you this. That on the side of the cursings where you should be judged, there is someone, a substitute, that stands in the middle between you and the curse. Do you see the image? And let me tell you something. There's somebody in the Bible, and it says this about him. And he was made a curse for you. Don't you see that? Isn't that beautiful? We stand on the side of the cursings. And the cursings are coming straight upon us. And the law, has, the law is like a handwriting of documents against us. And it's labeled and it's like it's, it's the indictment that's read in our presence where the judge is now going to sentence us and, and be cursed for our indictments. That's the imagery of, of Colossians chapter 2. And it says, and he took that document and he nailed it to the cross. He took the curses, didn't he? And that's why the sacrifices is on the curses. Now, in the, in the Samaritan mindset, they changed that. They changed the Torah. They changed the record. And they said that instead of the sacrifice being on the side of the curses, it was on the side of the blessings. Now, you think that's not a big deal until you go over there today. And guess what? They still practice animal sacrifices on Mount Gedizim today. At the top of Mount Gedizim is this little village called Nablus. Right? So I'm standing there at Sikhar, and we're drinking the water there. And I say to my Palestinian, he's a friend, Jacob or Jacob. I said, Jacob, I'd like to go to the top of that mountain. He gets all excited. You know, he's about this tall, about my size. You know, and he looks at me and goes, 
you want to go to Nablus? I said, yes. And he goes, I've never been there before. I go, neither have I. Let's go. And he goes, okay. And we take our little bus. We go up this little switchback road. We get at the top of Nablus. No one is there. We look like we could be totally wiped out. No one would ever hear from us again. We bring our bus into these small alleyways. The whole village comes out to look at us white people. And we get up there, and we found this 13-year-old fella. And it's his birthday. And he speaks reasonable English. And we say, do you still have animals? Oh, yeah. He takes us over to every altar. There's like six of them in a row with a trough that collects all the blood and water that goes in. We're going, whoa. Right? That turns out in this book by Jabe Nicholson called Behold the Land, he has a little article in there, I think it's either by Schofield or or Ironside, who described their hike up to the top of Mount Nablus, describing these animal sacrifices, you see. This is what she was referring to. She's saying, we we say that we, we worship on this mountain, on the side of the blessings. I mean, we picked the right side for goodness sake, Right? It's, 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 it's legit. It's legit. She's recollecting. You say it's in Jerusalem. We say it's on this mountain. Notice what we find, what the Lord Jesus is, is, he's going to, he's going to refute this thing about the place, but he does not, and this is what I want to point out, he does not refute the phrase ought to worship. Look at it, what it said there. Where was I? Verse 19. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. The Jews say in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. He's going, to, he's going to correct this thing about place and time and space. But he's not going to correct the phrase, ought to worship. You know what he's saying? Worship is a necessity. It needs to be done. It is part of the normal existence of, of, of the human species. It's not something that you can ignore. It's not something that you can let go. It has to be done. Think about it. If you do not have any concept of God... What, do you still worship? Yeah, you do. You either worship yourself, you worship your intellect, you worship your job, you worship your hobbies, you worship something, you sacrifice to something, it's, it's still going to be replaced. And what God is saying, listen, if you're going to worship, you need to worship me. Not a carved image, not a, not a, a sports uh, hobby or, or, or some other fetish. He's saying, you worship God. He's not refuting the fact that worship will be a normal part of the human existence. That's what Satan wants you to believe. You don't need to worship God. Just go do your own thing. Oh, you'll worship something else. It's called me, myself, and I. That's what happens to a lot of men, a lot of women, and their lives become so self-focused and so self-absorbed that that you can't. They become difficult people to deal with. It's all about me. It's all about how I feel. It's all about what I want. It's all about when I want it. It's all about where I want it. And I want you to know, Christian, that's something that we have to guard against, right? The book of Philippians is so clear. It is, describes the selfless life. Paul said it this way. You know, I really don't care if the gospel's preached and some preach it with, with, with mal, uh, with ill motives. Because the gospel's preached. I'm so happy about that. And if I die because of it, so be it. I'll be with the Lord. And if I don't die and I'm with you, well, that's better because you need me. And by the way, think of the Lord Jesus. He, he had an attitude where he always looked out for the interests of others and, and he considered others more important than himself, like the human race. And he made himself go from the form of God to the form of a slave. A slave is the ultimate expression of human servant. 
See, that's selflessness. Think of Timothy. He was selfless. No man cares for the body like he does, like a father, a son. He cares for you. Epaphroditus, he nearly lost his life in caring for you. Yodi, Sintiki, you listen. You need to be like that. Selfless. Selflessness. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of God. Our God is an extremely humble, selfless individual. He doesn't think, he doesn't, he doesn't, ask, he doesn't uh, call for worship because he needs worship coins put into the, into the Coke machine of heaven so he can feel better. He doesn't have some sort of inferiority complex or some sort of mental disorder that needs this constant flow of positive affirmation. Are you kidding me? That's a sicko representation, an idolatrous representation of God. Let me tell you what God is. God actually knows how he made us and what he made us and what completes the human framework. And he's saying to you, worship is part of that makeup. Don't try to deny it. It's there. And I want you to do it the right way, not the wrong way. Okay, does that make sense? All right, well, let's move on. So he, he, he uh, doesn't uh, uh, have any trouble with this idea of what must happen. That word ought means it must be done. Uh, it, has to, it, ha- it has to be done as a ro- result of compulsion. Now, what the Lord is going to challenge, as I just mentioned, is the location. So let's go on to our second point. First one was diversion. Now we're into correction. And what the Lord's going to do, he's going to kind of rework things in verse 21. It says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. What does that mean? It means it's important. It's his primacy. The hour is coming. Later on he says the hour is coming and now is. In other words, there is change afoot. It's different paradigm. It's a different thing. We're going to rework some things. I heard what you said, but we've got to rework some things. And, the, and when is the reworking going to start? Very soon. And what's the reworking? There's going to be a paradigm shift. Look at this. He says, The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What is the common denominator, common denominator between saying this mountain or Jerusalem? What's, where's Jerusalem located? What mountain? Mount Moriah. Hmm? He's saying this. doesn't matter which mountain you're talking about anymore. It's not about location, dear. In fact, there's a difference here. It's, it's, it's not about location. It's not about, to, extra, to expand that, it's not about externals. You see, the, the Jewish religion was very external. It had a priest that had a headdress and lots of stones on his chest and these really embroidered, beautiful robes that had gold everywhere and bells. I mean, you could hear the guy coming, for goodness sake. The high priest was well known, right? And you could see him from a distance and say, oh, there's our high priest Aaron today. How you doing, Aaron? Good to see you. Looking mighty fine, like yesterday, you know? It's very external. You bring an animal, right? You come in the animal, you bring the animal in, cut the animal's throat, blood, the whole thing. Very visible. Very uh, uh, outward. And you had the tabernacle and then the temple and, and the sacrifices. You could smell it. You could taste it on some occasions depending on which sacrifice it was. It's all that which you could taste, touch, feel. You could measure it with your senses. And the same was true really of the of the Samaritan religion, the animal sacrifices, they had two different way, uh, two different mechanisms, of course, two different locations. But the point is, whether it's the false worship 
uh, of the Samaritans, which was also external, or the true worship, the authorized worship of the Jews, which was, of course, with the ornate external visibility. He's saying that paradigm is going to be totally different. It's not going to be either in location or in externals. It's going to be something much more uh, uh, internal, and it's going to be of the hidden nature of the heart. That's what I'm changing here. I'm changing that. That hour is coming. It actually is now. And everything that happens in the New Testament will reflect that. You'll hear it this way. No man, let no man say, know the Lord, for all will know me. What does that mean? That means that the Spirit of God will be internal teaching you. And where does that come from? Well, that comes from 1 John, where it says, and we know the anointing that teaches us. The Spirit of God teaches us. You see, it has a real inward-like approach because God will live in the, in the body, in the soul, and will be the life heart, the beating heart, as it were, of the entire existence of the person. And because of the central core of that individual providing nutrition in a spiritual way to the rest of the body, you'll have a different paradigm. You'll have a different approach. See, he says the things that, that are corrupt or that which comes from the sin nature and comes outward, I'm going to take that nature which so infiltrated your personality, so infiltrated your mind and your will and emotions, and I'm going to take that you and I'm going to crucify that you with me on the cross. And I'm going to resurrect a new you and the new you will not be tainted and laced by the nature of sin, but we tainted, laced and energized by the, by the nature of God through His Spirit. And now your personality will be there, your will will be there, your mind will be there, your intellect will be there, but this time it will be so much more, so much more, as it were, uh, 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 intertwined, interwoven with the life of God. That's how a new paradigm, that's why it's so internal oriented. It comes from the internally outward. I pray that the Spirit of God would strengthen you from the inner man. You see what he's saying? All that terminology is talking about what you can't see. Thus, we meet and we gather, and we're not a structure because of the building. We're a structure because we spiritually are living stones and make a spiritual structure. It's in principle form, and yet it's just as real as anything else. See that? Does that make sense? Nobody, that doesn't make sense. Okay, I'll try again. All right. So he says the externals are going out. Uh, You can imagine if uh, maybe as they were there, there was maybe an animal being sacrificed or burned on the top of Mount Gerizim and and, and, uh, minds would go to the the temple robe. But he says, listen, that's that's something new. And it's going to happen, or that's something old. Something new is going to happen, and it's going to be brought about by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what I just described. You died with him, the old man, the new person. Your mind, will, and emotions, personality, all resurrected now with God sort of weaving himself in every pore and cell of the soulish experience. That's what he's saying. It's beautiful. Now, what, what else is correct? Well, in the correction part, he reworks some things, but he redirects. And that's in verse 22. Look at what it says in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. What's he saying there? He says, listen, you worship in foolishness. All right? It's a false religion. Now, he's not, he's not trashing the false religion, although he's naming it as false. He says, there is a true form, and the Jews do that. But he says, it's, whether it's non-authorized worship, or authorized worship, it's not going to matter. In other words, there are principles 
that will need to govern the worship from here on forward. And I'm not going to be, it's not going to be acceptable to have false worship, and it's not going to be acceptable to have the old worship, even though it was true. It's only going to be acceptable to have the new paradigm of my worship. You see, today, many of us will come, even in gatherings like this or outside of our gatherings, and it will be maybe unauthorized, right? But that's, that's, not the, that's not the right one. And maybe we'll, we'll have an idea of worship that is based on, on accuracy of the, of the Scriptures, but it's not fitting the new paradigm that the Lord Jesus is going to give you in John chapter 4. He said that's not authorized either. What he's trying to tell us is that is really important. What I'm going to tell you, lady, what I'm going to tell you, New Testament church, is this is what's dear to me. This is, this is something that surpasses that which is old. Even if it was false or true, it's going to surpass. And that's important to me. And I want you to understand something. If it's important to God, my goodness, it ought to be important to you and I. You see how, important, how, how vital that is? You see, I, when, I, when, I was, when our children were younger, and even we still do this, but I, I tell them things. I said, listen, if dad thinks this is important, then you're going to think it's important, right? If dad thinks it's important to do the dishes, you're going to think it's important to do the dishes. If dad thinks it's important to get to meeting on time, you're going to think it's going to be important to get to meeting on time. If dad thinks it's important to, to, uh, to help uh, with the laundry, you're going to think. You see, we set a tone, right? We set a certain prioritization. God is saying this. I this is important. This is valuable to me. I, 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 do I not have a place in your soul that values me to the point that if you if it's important to me, you will adopt its importance to you. And that's our problem, Christian. We haven't yet learned to adopt the importance of the things to God and make them therefore our importance. What do you think? Made David a man after God's own heart. What what gave him that status, that description? The thing that gave him that description was the things that were important to God, he made important to himself. Oh, don't you want to be that kind of people? I do. I do. William. I'm going to bring him. William. He was, I think, eight, maybe younger. It was Father's Day. And uh, we have a couple of traditions in our family. Number one, we're always late. That's our tradition. Number two, we always send a car early so we can get credit for being on time, but the rest of us come in the second car. (laughs) Value of having a large family. And number three, we have orange danishes on special events. They're Pillsbury. I don't know why. It just Janet, when I married her, this is what we did. I said, oh, it sounds good to me. And they can't be the fake. They have to be Pillsbury. Right? So this particular day was Father's Day. and Janet was so special. She made orange danishes for Father's Day. Which I actually thought was very brave of her because Sunday mornings can be tense, as I saw on, the, on YouTube. It's very tense. And uh, <laughs> I was like, can I, can I get your autograph? And so uh, she makes them, and we sit down. We have like glass china or uh, crystal crystal uh, plates and punch cups where they hold about two ounces of milk, and you know you get this. 
And so we're sitting down, and William, he's got a present. The only kid that had a present on the table, you know. Dad, open my gift, open my gift, open my gift. I said, okay, okay, okay. And so I look at it, and it's a happy birthday sack on Father's Day. I said, oh. And I reach in, and I pull out Merry Christmas tissue paper. This kid's smart. Covering three holidays already, one day. It's a pretty smart kid. Must take after his mother. And I reach in with my other hand, and I pull out plastic easter egg that's four holidays that's pretty good and he goes open it up crack the egg crack the egg you know it's like it's like an academy award you know and the winner is and so i go crack and out fells taco bell sauce mild and he goes like this my finger and everything because you never know how how much you'll need that because you're traveling this weekend and i know how you like taco bell that's what he said to me I just went, thank you. I still got it. It's on my desk. But here's what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, he went to the effort to think about what would make me happy. He studied me. He looked at me. He observed me. And he said, I think that'd make you happy. Here we have our Father in Heaven. And there's going to be something that's really important to him. And we think that it's really hard to figure that out and God is saying, no, actually, it's a, it's, a worship, it's a worship paradigm that really makes me happy. Don't you think maybe we ought to study that, know that, follow that, just because it would make him so pleased? You see that? You see that illustration? And that's exactly what I want to be. Now, I have to confess to you, I have moments in my life where I am so self-centered, the only person I want to worship is me, myself, and I. I have times in my life when I am so discouraged, the only person I want to worship is my pillow. I have times in my life when I am so, so controlled, so full of pride and arrogance that worship becomes a foreign language for me. All those things fly in the face of what's valuable to the heart of God. I want to be a man that values what God values. And he values this kind of worship. Don't you want to be like that? David was so interesting. You know, in all of his conquests, he saved all of his loot so he could give it to the construction of the temple of the Lord. It's like one day he's sitting around and he looks in his palace and he's got uh, oak and cedar and gold and everything. And, and maybe I can just see this since the evening time, the sun is setting and he looks out and he can smell the evening sacrifice and his eyes look at the smoke and it wanders down because it's on the lower part of Jerusalem there. Uh, and, and, and he sees this, the, the, the tent with the animal skins. And then he looks around and he looks back and he looks and he says, Something's wrong. God is greater, bigger, mightier than I, and I live in a better dwelling place than he does. And he says this, I'd like to build you a building. That's the kind of worship I think God's after. That spontaneous thinking of what is valuable to the heart of God, and therefore I make it my heart to do. I have a confession to make to you. This has been my own personal 
search for what, what many in different courses would call the philosophy of ministry. What does that mean? It's mean what, it means what is going to really motivate me. And I saw what William did, and I saw what David did, and I asked the Lord alone. I said, I'd like to give you a gift too. I just don't know what it is. What would, what would you like? And I began to think about the Lord. You know, one day he's going to have a marriage and usually uh, the bride gives a gift to the bridegroom. Excuse me. And the bridegroom gives a gift to the bride. And I said, well, I'm part of that bride. What would I give you? And I, I didn't know. And I said, well, Lord, I, I think it would be really great if I could give you a bride that is anticipating the first glimpse of her bridegroom. That first moment when she steps out and the bridegroom goes, oh my. Right? That's what happened to me when I got married. That's why I remember this. You see, I said to the Lord, I'm just a little man and, and, and my little existence is so tiny, but if I could ever give you a gift, I would really like it to be this bride that is ready, anticipating, that is chaste, that is pure in a practical way, that is looking forward to seeing her bride, that doesn't live in pride, see her bridegroom, that doesn't live in pride or self-centeredness or covetousness or idolatry, just can't wait. And every, every sound of the historical doorstep is a sound. Is that him? Lord, if I could give you that gift... That would be the gift I'd like to give you on our wedding day. I think we all need that heart, don't you? All right, let's move on. What time am I supposed to end, brother? All right, good. Finally, I wore you down. I'm going to worship. Now, here's going to give instruction. So let's finish this last paragraph, okay? He, gives, he says this in verse 23. The hour is coming and now is. He's, he's saying it's right now. It's right upon you, dear. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? True worshipers, authentic worshipers, as opposed to the previous styles of worship, whether it be the falseness of, of, the, of the Samaritan religion or the accuracy of the Jewish or Judean religion. He's saying true worshipers, genuine, authentic, pure-hearted, that one, the one I'm looking for, will have two facets about you. And one is that you'll worship in spirit. Now, what does that mean? I believe the first thing, because if you take the word to be the small s, not the spirit, the noun, or the, pro, uh, the, the formal noun of spirit, the Holy Spirit, but just the spirit of man, right? The spirit of tripartite makeup of man, body, soul, and spirit, the spirit part of man. That means that there is a purity involved, a real sense of, of, of heart, a sincerity it's not plastic. It's not, it's not uh, because I have to. It's not, oh, I better say something. Oh, I need to have a prayer. Oh, what song might I say because everybody's going to expect me to do something. It's none of that sort of fictitious hypocrisy. It is, it is authentic. It's sincere. It's because it's genuine. Oh, saints, if there's something that really smart, really, really captures the heart of God, it's the genuineness of it all. The genuality of true worship. We're going to see that hopefully today when we talk about the women that anointed the Lord Jesus, the genuineness of their spirit. I think that's part of this. It's not the only part, but it's part of this. It's, it, it, what's the second part? It's the second part 
excuse me, the first part I mean, it, it, he's making the contrast with the externals. He's saying it's real, it's real motivation inwardly. But the second part is this whole idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, referring to John 7, 37 through 39. That's the big S, not the smallest, the big S. Worship him in spirit. That is, in the energy and vitality of the Spirit of God. That is, that God's life is now intertwined. Let me see if I can explain it this way. In your human body, your skin, your muscles, your, 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 your cells, you have this thing called connective tissue. I don't know what knucklehead came up with that. It's very, not too exciting, but it's very descriptive. Now, some of you will notice connective tissue when you skin a chicken. Anybody take the skin off a chicken before? All right, and when you do that, you notice this sort of white stringy stuff. Do you ever notice that? And you kind of go, oh, get there. that's nasty. You, know, you get that off. Well, that little white stringy stuff, that's called connective tissue. It's, uh, it's what holds everything in your body together. If I were to bring you to my emergency department and we t- take a cut in your arm, not that I'd do that to you, but if you wanted to, I could, and then I'd numb you up first. I would lift up the flap and you'd actually see skin layer, fat layer. And the fat layer, not that you would have a lot of fat layer, I'm just part of the illustration, you have this stuff between the two and it's called connective tissue. That's the idea. This stuff that surrounds every cell, every blood vessel, every organ, every, every, everything in the body has this sticky stuff attached to it. This is what he's saying. In the Spirit of God comes and lives in you. He touches every facet of your soul. Mind, will, emotions, personality. He's, he's woven in and around it everywhere. So that when you speak, act, do, live, you're living, as it were, the vibrancy of God in you. It comes out no matter how you try because the Spirit of God's life seeps through every spiritual pore. I think this is what he's saying. God now, God the Father gives us the command, then God knowing that all life comes from Him anyway, and so He then inhabits the individual in such a way, not as a separate entity, but interwoven entity within you, so that now everything that is initiated has God's fingerprints on it, has God's mind about it, has God's intellect about it, has God's ways about it. That's what has happening. That God, the new life that gives your mind, will, emotions, personality, it's, it's new creation, it's now showing that. Do you ever sit around sometimes and you have these thoughts you never used to have, like, well, maybe, I should, maybe I should call that person, or maybe I should give this, maybe I should stop and help, maybe I should say something about the gospel. Do you ever have those moments? Where do those come from? Well, I was listening to the radio this morning, and they said I should witness, so I thought I should. No, it's the Spirit of God working in your heart, that actually brings such fruit to fruition. That's what's happening. And this is what we are to be about. The Spirit of God driving, moving, motivating, teaching, instructing, illuminating, so that the worship is really from God's activity within your life. Does that make sense? And that's what's happening. And when we gather, when we're alone or when we're as a group, that's what's happening. I want to put on our front keyboard, worship leader, the Spirit of God. Don't you want that? I also want to put up there, Pastor Jesus Christ. Well, we get a lot of phone calls about that one, wouldn't we? Oh, what's you guys taking his title like that? He's our pastor too. I said, hey, we named him first, buddy. No, I wouldn't say that. I want to, but I wouldn't say that. You see, the point is, 
is that that's what he's saying. It's got to be this way. It can't be any other way. This requires a huge investment of you and I individually and the spiritual aspect that is communing with the Spirit of God on a regular, repetitive basis. Not just once a day, ka-ching, I've done my ten minutes. But it's this constant communion. That's why prayer is an intricate part of daily life. And I don't mean I'm going to pray for 15 minutes for the world and the lost. I mean where we're just communing with the Lord. I was listening to Mark Hartley. He came to our chapel a few weeks ago. He, oh, I can't repeat what he said, but he was funny and he said this. He says, you know, I just talk to the Lord. We're driving down the road. I'm by myself. Who else am I going to talk to? I talk with the Lord. And I said, you know, it's funny. I do that too. I just commune with the Lord. Lord, I was thinking about, what do you think about? You know, and we just have this, this not conversation between you know, two halves of my brain, like it's some sort of thing like that, but I'm just talking with the Lord. This kind of vitality of interaction. That's what he's after, and this is how he says it should be. Now, what is it, what's this thing about truth? Well, number one, it's, the context is truth versus true worship versus false worship. This idea of what you're doing, lady, is false worship. I want you to have true worship. Now, this is a biggie because even in the Old Testament, when somebody came into the tabernacle the wrong way, they lost their life. Nadab and Abihu brought profane fire, right? Not propane fire, that would have been explosive, right? Never mind, it's a joke. So the point is, is it had to come in the right way. God had a certain uh, protocol to follow. And in this sense, there is a certain protocol, right? It's not the protocol of all these ornate things. It's the protocol of that which moves the heart according to the truth. What kind of truth? Well, we're talking about uh, according to his word. My word is truth. And we're talking about the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. In other words, it's consistent with his personality. It's consistent with his person. It's consistent with the principles that he teaches. Everything about him, it's consistent with it. So if he says, for example, I want you to deal with one another when there's a wrong, then, then we, we come with worship with that principle in mind. Uh, when he says, I, I want you to, to, um, to, uh, uh, to give out of the fullness of your heart, not because there's a certain quotient of 10% or 20%. I want you to worship me all the fullness of your heart as each one has been given a measure of faith or, or, or grace. That's how you give. Don't look at the other. Just give, right? That kind of thing, whether it be of praise, of thanksgiving, of, 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 of service or of monetary. He says, listen, it's out of the full, that, that's how he wants it done, according to his person, his principles, his priorities. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's in James. Isn't that interesting? Mercy. You know what that means? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That means mercy stands on the chair, if I may, stands on the chair and looks at judgment and says, ha! That's what the word triumph means, right? And one weekend, you got the preacher on the floor and the preacher on the chair. It doesn't get any better than that. I lost my train of thought. Now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the priority. So this is the things you're thinking about. It's according to his truth. It's according to his word. It's according to his person. You see that? This is what he's saying. It's a different paradigm. He says, he says, of course, oh boy. He says, this is what the Father is seeking. Look at verse 23. We'll close with this one and we can take a break. It goes like this. Worship the Father in spirit and truth, for this is what the Father is seeking. Luke 15, 18. You see, 15, 8. You see that word up there, that verse? That's that passage in the trilogy of three parables where there is a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. 
And he says he goes out, and he, in, this, in this case, he seeks those sheep. What do you think that means? The shepherd... Oops. I do that to a lot of people. All right, so the shepherd is out, and he's lost his sheep, and, and he's going to go seek for, look for the sheep. What does he do? He says, well, don't see him around here. Let's go home, boys. No! He's looking in every nook and cranny. What about if you lost a coin? I lost something before I came this week. I'm looking in the car. I'm up at midnight. I'm looking in the car. I'm looking under the seats. I'm looking in the bathrooms. I'm thinking the kids stole it. Oh, excuse me. I shouldn't have said that. I'm thinking of everything, right? I mean, that's what we do. We're looking. We're searching. We're, we're agonizing over it. We are, we're invested in it emotionally and physically. And this is what goes as the same word. The Father is seeking such worshipers. He is vested in this. He is looking for it. It's almost, in one sense, it's used in Luke 13, 7, where you look for, uh, or the Father is, or uh, He came to the fig tree and He was looking for fruit. It's like He was demanding the fig tree should make fruit. That's the same word. Listen, say, this is important to God. He is searching for these worshipers like He would search for a lost coin. He is expecting it to be there like He would expect the fig tree to make figs. It's a serious thing to God. He's expecting this to be important. And I think the question should be asked, is it important to you? Or is it just something that we do to fill our day? Is it just the protocol of the meetings? The elders called it. We've got to do it. How about this? How about we just worship the Lord privately because we love Him? How about that one? This is the idea of in spirit and in truth, out of sincerity of heart. This is what I think we're missing. Out of all the people groups on the planet, I want to ask you, which people group should know this better than anyone else? The believers. The believers in Jesus Christ. The sons and daughters of God who are, gra- who are granted that title because of their faith and the work of Jesus Christ alone. We're the ones that are supposed to understand this. We're the ones who are supposed to, uh, to practice this. We're the ones to articulate it and to demonstrate it. We're the ones who are supposed to grasp what's important to Him. No one else is going to. No one else without the life of God in them will be able to understand it. He says this in the context of living water. Those who have living water will think this way. Here's the question. You have living water. Do you think this way? If you don't have, think this way, then there's something wrong, not with the water, but with your taste buds, with your digestive system, with your heart. Something's wrong there. I want to suggest to you that if you find yourself in that situation where something's not right, that I don't value the things that God values, I don't think this way, then I want to ask you something. Would you do this before the living God tonight? Would you get before Him alone I don't care if it's a closet or a car. And you just say, God, I, 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 don't have, I don't see it like you do. You have things you're looking for. You, this is who the Father seeks. Are you finding that in me? Is that the kind of heart I have? Is this the, am I reflecting this new paradigm? Or am I still doing externals here because it's the only thing I know? You know, this is the deal. People say, well, Steve, we got traditions. Listen, what, the way you keep traditions from being archaic is because you freshly approach them with the freshness of God's Word. And if we still do the way we did it, then I guess you call it a tradition, but it's not because it's fresh. It's fresh fruit to me, right? That's the difference. And the question has to be asked, listen, what do our hearts look like? 
Does he really find what he's looking for? Is it important to me as it is, as it is incredibly important to him? And if the answer is even a hint of no, let's just ask God to change us. I can't fix it. I've tried. I've had to ask God to change me, to fix me. I'm a broken car and I need the expert mechanic. It's beyond my capacities to know how to fix it or even abilities to fix it. Would you just fix me? Father, this morning we come. I just ask you that the Spirit of God would take this Word of God and truly take the paint, as it were, and put it on the the, the doorways and, and the walls and the windowsills, the frames of our home, Lord. I pray that we would become that kind of people that you're looking for. I can't imagine you're looking for this person and I don't want to be found that way. Oh, God, that's a problem. And I can tell you that my heart has been like that so many times. Would you fix us? Make us a people group. And yes, the assemblies begin with us. Begin with us, I pray, to be a bride that is oh so ready in lifestyle to meet her bridegroom. In Jesus' name, amen. Five minutes.